Just a quick program note at the top of this episode. Well, it does not really go into descriptions, this episode does make references to rape and sexual situations. Listeners, be advised. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Sheila was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a kid from my flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. About a month ago, I did an episode of this podcast about the story of Onan. I wanted to debunk some of the ways in which people have misused that story to advance their own agenda, in particular to control people and make them feel bad for normal activities like masturbation, or having sex for pleasure. I think that was an important episode, and I would definitely suggest you go back to it. It was episode 7.22, Onan the Man with the Plan. But Onan is really just a side character in a longer and, I would argue, a more important story of the woman that Onan was having sex with, Tamar. Onan, as I think I demonstrated in that episode, was a real scoundrel, and he was surrounded by scoundrels as well. No one in the entire family treated Tamar well or fairly. And so you simply cannot help but admire Tamar as you read it. Even when she engages in questionable behavior, and yes, she certainly engages in questionable behavior, you just have to root for her. And so, having told the story of the scoundrel, I cannot fail to come back to tell the story of the heroine, 
one of the greatest in biblical history. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.24 When Tamar Saved Judah It had been an extremely hard labor at the end of a very difficult pregnancy. Tamar was completely exhausted. Her last reserves of strength nearly spent as she was finally allowed to lay back on her couch. The midwife brought her children and laid them upon her bare chest and she felt her heart swell with joy and relief as she watched them root around. They seemed healthy and strong, and that was such a wonder to her after all that she had been through. She had suffered and endured so much in order to have these children. For so long, Bringing them into the world had been her only focus and goal, the only thing that she truly wanted. It was hard to believe that they were actually here. She felt as if she had to pinch herself to make sure that she wasn't dreaming. There were two of them, twins, and that was undoubtedly what had made her labor so difficult. But now that they were both here, she realized that that was how it had to be. Ever since Tamar had married into the household of her father-in-law, Judah, she had learned a great deal about the family. She knew that the family had a long-standing relationship with their God, Yahweh, and that God had given them great blessings. But she was also aware of a curse that had been passed down in the family. She thought of it as the elder brother curse. Generation after generation, the family had been torn apart by strife between older and younger brothers. The elder often favored by their fathers, while the younger championed by their mothers. First there had been Ishmael and his brother Isaac. Then, in the next generation, the conflict had been between Esau and Jacob. After that, in her father-in-law's generation, the family had almost completely fallen apart over strife between Jacob's favored son, Joseph, and almost all of the others. 
when she had married into the family. Tamar herself had become a victim of this strife. She was first given to the oldest son, Ur, who was favored by his father. And right away, she picked up on the animosity that existed between her husband and the second son of Judah, Onan. Onan despised his brother. You could see it in his every glance and hear it in every sullen remark. Of course, none of that really bothered Tamar at first. She didn't have to deal with Onan, and her husband's status in the family prevented him from acting against them. But that all changed after Ur's sudden and disturbing death. Since Tamar had not given her husband a son and heir, only a daughter, the custom required that she be given to one of his brothers so that he could father a child who would be the heir of Ur. And so suddenly she found herself in the power of Onan, who did not hesitate to take out his resentment of his brother on his brother's widow. She did not like to think about all of the ways in which he had abused her, and she tried her best to banish the memories from her mind. But as much as she hated all that he did to her, the very worst part of it all was how he absolutely refused to finish inside her. He always pulled out at the last minute and spilled his semen on the ground. And she knew that he did it to deny his brother an heir. But she could also tell that he was only too happy to deny her a son who would be her ticket to freedom from being in Onan's clutches. Oh, this family. They were all just so messed up. And she felt certain that their fraternal rivalries would destroy them all in the end. But here, nestled against her breasts, was the solution to all of that. She knew that the endless chain of brotherly hatred had finally been broken with the birth of these two boys. This had been achieved in the most remarkable way. No one could be sure which of the two was actually the elder. It had all been a blur to Tamar at the time, but the midwife, full of wonder, for she had never seen such a thing before, had described to her the extraordinary chain of events. In the midst of the contractions of her labor, 
one of the two boys, the one she would call Zara, had actually stuck his hand right out of the womb first. The midwife, knowing how important birth order could be, quickly tied a bright scarlet thread around the tiny little wrist. But then the hand was withdrawn, and the labor continued. In the end, it was not Zara who fully emerged first, but his brother Perez, and so it remained unclear which of the two was truly the firstborn. But where many might have seen such a thing as a problem, as it would raise questions about inheritance, Tamar did not. She felt as if it was a sign that the curse of sibling rivalry had finally been resolved for Judah's family. Perhaps these sons could lead to something better for the family than the strife that had plagued her own life. To tell of all that Tamar had suffered because of her husband Ur and his brother Onan would be an entire episode on its own. So let us just focus on what Tamar had gone through since the death of Onan. Judah, her father-in-law, had had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar had been married to the first, given to the second in order to produce an heir for her dead husband, and now she should have been given to the third son for the same reason. Everyone expected that to happen in short order, but it did not. And the only reason for that was that Judah did not allow it. He had come to Tamar shortly after the time of mourning for Onan was over. But he did not behave like a father-in-law should. He did not greet her according to her status. In fact, he would barely even look at her as he spoke to her. The reason seemed clear enough. His two eldest sons were now dead. Both had died suddenly and in disturbing ways. Most of the people in the community assumed that these deaths had been acts of divine judgment. What else were they supposed to think? But as Judah glanced darkly at her from the corner of his eyes, Tamar realized that he did not agree with the community consensus. For Judah, Tamar was the only common thread between the deaths of his sons that mattered. He blamed her. He may not have known how, but he was somehow certain that she was the cause of these tragic deaths.
And when she saw that, she also saw something else, that he was afraid. He only had one son left, and he was terrified that if he gave Tamar to his last son, the same fate would befall him. Of course, she knew that this was irrational foolishness. She was not the cause of Ur or Onan's death. Either they had brought judgment on themselves, or it had just been one of those random tragedies of life in this world. But it was not her fault. But... Of course, what she thought mattered for nothing. Judah was the only one who had any power here. And so when he told her that his third son, Shelah, was too young for her to be given to him, it didn't matter that she knew that that wasn't quite true that boys of his age had been married before, and that he was only trying to delay her, there was no point in her saying anything. He told her to return to her father's house, and to live there until such time as he decided that his last remaining son was ready to marry her. And so, she packed up her little girl, and off she went, to wait, and wait, and wait. Tamar was living in her father's house, but she had no control over her own life, nor for that matter, did her father or mother have any control. She could not choose to marry somebody else. Her parents could not decide to give her to another. Having entered into a covenant of marriage with Judah's oldest son, he was the only one who had any control over her and her destiny. And Judah was completely absent. She heard nothing from him, nor did she receive any support. She and her daughter were merely a burden on her father's household, and neither she nor they could do anything about it. And Tamar lived in that limbo for years. For all she had heard of him, Judah might as well be dead. Perhaps he was. And so she remained, until one day she heard that Judah was heading out to Timnah, where he owned some flocks. He was going for the shearing of the sheep, and everybody understood what that meant. Shearing was a time of festival and celebration, 
but it was also more than that. <laughs> the saying was that what happened during the shearing stayed at the shearing. There was drinking and dancing, and the men often took liberties with the young women who were there. And everyone just looked the other way and pretended not to notice, even if sometimes the women were unwilling. Judah's wife had passed away some months previously. By all accounts, he had taken it badly, and his time of mourning had been hard. This was perhaps not too surprising. He had dealt with too much death already, with the loss of two sons and of his brother Joseph. He had always been particularly weird about Joseph's death, almost as if he was hiding something about it. But he had apparently taken it badly. But this new death had really pushed him over the edge, and he lay in grief for weeks. But the fact that he was now going with his best friend to the shearing was a sign that he had finally gotten over it and was ready to sow some wild oats. As Tamar looked on, she was suddenly struck by something else. There was another young man striding along beside him. He was quite handsome, and she looked at him closely wondering who he might be. And then, with a sudden intake of breath, she realized why he looked familiar. It was Shayla, Judah's youngest son. Tamar had not been permitted to see him, not allowed to even be near him, so she couldn't help but be amazed at the change in him. He was a full-grown man now, and sported a full beard. Coming to terms with this amazing transformation all at once forced Tamar to see just how foolish she had been. Judah clearly had no intention to allow her to get a son on his remaining son. And that sudden realization moved something within her. Up until this point in her life, her entire fate and future had been completely in the hands of others, of her father, of her husband, and then of her father-in-law. But all of these people had failed in their divinely appointed duty to care for her and for her daughter. Clearly no one was ever going to step up and take care of her. She was going to have to take control of her own fate. But it was actually even worse than that. 
It was not simply that Judah had failed to take care of his daughter-in-law and granddaughter. His fear of her and what she might do to his son had caused him to neglect his duty to his family. If she was not allowed to bear a son to carry on the legacy of Ur, that entire legacy would be lost. Judah was risking the extinction of his name and family from the face of the earth. They would be forgotten into eternity, and all because of an irrational fear that Tamar was a curse who would kill his last son as well. No one was going to address this situation. No one was going to act to save Tamar or the legacy of this family. And so, Tamar decided she would act. It all fell to her. Judah's progress to Timnah would be slow. The company would certainly not wait to begin their revelries until they had arrived at the place of the shearing. This gave Tamar a great deal of time to pass ahead of him on his route. She knew that they would no doubt stop and entertain themselves. And one of the places where they were bound to do that was a place called Enayim. There was a sanctuary there, dedicated to the fertility goddess Asherah, and it was not uncommon for young women to offer themselves as sacred prostitutes in the precincts of the sanctuary. As was the common practice, women who carried out such a devotion would wear a veil. That way, any man who made use of their sacred services would never know if he might have actually slept with the goddess, who was also said to offer herself there. And so Tamar quickly made her way to Enayim. She obtained a veil and sat down by the side of the road to wait for Judah's party to arrive. She was taking a risk, of course. Judah might recognize his daughter-in-law, in spite of the veil, but she thought that unlikely. The truth of the matter was that he had barely even looked at her, not since the death of her first husband. If he hadn't acknowledged her existence for so long, why would he do so now? Surely he would just see her as another nameless prostitute. She was fortunate. There were no other young women who were making the devotion at the same time. Otherwise, of course, 
there would be the possibility that Judah might choose another woman. But now she had no doubt that her plan would work. And so she waited. Come, let me come in to you. That was all he said. It was exactly how he put it. I guess you might say that Judah was many things, but he certainly wasn't subtle. As soon as he saw her sitting outside the sanctuary, he came straight up to her with his indecent proposal. Tamar was pleased, but she certainly didn't show it. Instead, she responded as if this was something that she had done often. Well, big boy, what will you give me that you may come in to me? And so they haggled. It was true that many came to the sanctuary, both men and women, as an act of devotion to the goddess. But for Judah, this was clearly simply transactional. They settled on a fair price. One young kid from his flocks. But, hey, listen, Judah went on as he padded his clothing. I, um, I seem to have left all of my kids in my other tunic today. I mean, I'm on my way out to where I keep my flocks. So I can't really pay you right now. Uh, but we're good, right? I mean, you could trust me to get it to you later. Tamar rolled her eyes. Did men actually think that women would fall for this kind of thing? Uh, yeah, no, she replied. You're going to have to give me something to earn that kind of trust. At this point, Judah was very aware of just how long it had been since his wife had died and he had been in mourning. His desperation to have some intimate contact with any woman he could find was unmistakable. In the moment, he would have given her anything just to be able to start to get it on with her. Tamar had, of course, anticipated this entire exchange and given a lot of thought to what she would ask for. Give me your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. Judah's eyes widened in surprise. Did this woman really know what she was asking for? His hand went to the cylinder that hung on his chest. It was carved out of stone, with unique markings that indicated his own name and family. 
He used it whenever he wanted to mark something as his own. When he sealed a box or jar, for example, he would take wet clay and place it around the fastening, and then he would roll the cylinder across the clay before it hardened, leaving a unique marking so that all would know that it was his and that they dare not break the seal. Judah had many goods, so he used this signet a lot, so much so that he wore it on a cord around his neck for easy access at all times. If he gave it to this woman, even for a short while, it would be a major inconvenience. But that was not the only thing that made him hesitate. It was not just an item used for personal identification, after all. It was the symbol of his family, the family that he was charged to preserve through all the generations. The recent death of his wife had reminded him of how he had failed in that duty, how he had failed to ensure a grandson through Ur and Onan, and even, because of his own fear, through Shelah. Though he would never admit it to anyone, not even to his best friend Hira, he had been feeling like a failure as a patriarch. Handing this symbol of his dynasty over to this woman felt like finally giving up on his duty altogether. But, at this point, Judah's sense of duty held little sway over him. His rational mind was being overruled by another part of his anatomy. Somehow, the desperate impulse within him persuaded him that the signet and the cord and the staff that he also intended to pass on to his heir would only be gone for a little time. He would get them back and then once again take charge of his family's destiny. But first, didn't he deserve to have himself a little bit of fun? And so he handed the items over, and the woman led him off to the little tent that had been pitched near the sanctuary for this purpose. I won't describe everything that happened in that tent. I do think that there are some things best left to the imaginations of my podcast listeners, the dirty, dirty imaginations of my listeners. Let me just say that when Judah continued on his way towards Timnah, he did have a bit of a skip in his step. And it wasn't just because he was no longer carrying that stone weight around his neck or the heavy staff in his hand. Judah was satisfied. But as Tamar watched him disappear down the road, 
she also was quite satisfied. No, not because of that. But as she looked down at the signet, the cord, and the staff in her lap, she knew exactly what they represented. The destiny of Judah's family was now firmly in her hands, and she had no doubt in her womb. The twins had both eaten as much as their tiny stomachs could hold and were slumbering contentedly upon her chest. She knew very well that they would give her little respite and that she would be wise to sleep as well. But, exhausted as she was, she could not. She was filled with a sense of exaltation. She had done it. She had accomplished what seemed impossible. And what's more, she knew that she was in the right. That was indeed an extraordinary thing for her to think. After all, she had just given birth to her own father-in-law's children. But her righteousness was beyond all doubt. Hadn't Judah himself declared it? Oh, she would long savor her memory of the day she was supposed to be put to death. She would tell these boys her story and make sure that they remembered it and passed it down to their children. When, three months after her encounter with Judah by the side of the road, her pregnancy began to show, word of it quickly spread. She was still under the control of her father-in-law, and he, not having given her to Sheila, knew that he had certainly not given her permission to be with any other man either. The conclusion that she had betrayed his family by polluting it with another man seemed inescapable. Judah clearly thought that any sort of trial was completely unnecessary. Without even seeing her or engaging in any sort of inquest, he issued the immediate order for her execution. The community was not about to pass up the spectacle of a pretty young woman being thrown into the fire. They gathered in great numbers at the time and place appointed. And so everyone saw it when, just before she was taken to the fire to be burned, she suddenly produced the signet, cord, and staff. She would never forget the gasps 
of the crowd as they instantly recognized these items. And she had to give it to Judah. He was honorable enough in the end. He probably could have tried to make up some story about how the items had been lost or stolen from him, and that he had no idea how Tamar had obtained them. Such was his status that no one would have questioned such a story, no matter how ridiculous. But no, no, he admitted the truth of the matter. And then he looked at her, really looked at her for the first time since his eldest son had died. And when he said, she is more in the right than I, she could see what that cost him. It was not just an admission that he had failed to take care of his duty to her and her daughter by permitting her to have a son. It was an admission that he had failed to take care of his family and its legacy, and that she had had to swoop in and save the family from itself. Tamar had saved Judah's family. This family to which she had been bound so many years before, from extinction. Of course, she had no knowledge of all that this family was destined to go on to do and to be. But she had also ensured that destiny as well. The Bible was produced in a very patriarchal culture, a culture that was totally oriented towards male dominance and authority. Because of that, most of the heroes of the Bible are men. But there is one way in which the biblical culture seemed to allow women to stand out as heroes and saviors of the nation. There are so many stories of women who struggle to have children, and specifically male children, in order to ensure the next generation. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah, as well as the unnamed mother of Samson, to name just a few, all faced seemingly insurmountable barriers to having children. In the end, however, they all overcame and saved the nation from extinction by bearing a son or two. I have dealt with many such stories in this podcast, and I will leave some links in the show notes to help you discover them. The story of Tamar is a story that fits that overarching biblical theme, but wow, could her version be more extreme? The barriers that she has to overcome 
are not the usual ones of infertility or competition by other women. She faces direct opposition by the dominant men in her life, especially Judah and Onan. They intentionally try to prevent her heroism and salvation of the nation. And yet, she overcomes. Does she have to go to extreme lengths to win in the end? Absolutely. But even prostitution and incest cannot prevent her from doing what she must for her own sake, the sake of her daughter, and even for the sake of those who oppress her. That is why she is declared right in the end, and why I would say that she is the Bible's greatest heroine in this particular genre of heroic tale. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada by Kevin MacLeod. And the mood music of this episode was Rising Sun by Sasha End. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast, and a special welcome to new supporters, Matt, Mitch Ruth, and Donna Marie. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com retellingthebible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. Thank you.